Welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game of me, Kevin Day, and him, Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, good morning. You know my views on the countryside, but on a lovely, rainy, autumn morning like today, I quite envy your leafy location. How is it down there? It it is quite good, except I had a bit of an accident Uh, yesterday. uh, We'd run out of ciabatta, so I got on my bicycle and and went down to to the local Waitrose to, to stock up. Um, and as you know, I'm quite tall. Mm. And when I dismounted my bike, I managed to rip my jeans of the crop by about, you know, the whole thing literally fell out. So I had to walk around Waitrose with my legs bound together, uh, which was uh, quite traumatic. Oh, that's good. It's, it's the first time I've heard you use the phrase dismounted without it being a euphemism as well. Well done. <laughs> uh, you should have walked around. That's a, that's a, that's a very bourgeois accident that isn't it on the way to Waitrose to get some more ciabatta you should have just strode freely around Waitrose and people would have thought you were an advert for manscaping um well th- that's true yes I, I did I did cycle back and actually it was remarkably liberating uh cycling back with the crotch hanging out of your trousers I imagine it um, would be yes very cooling and uh of course because I had manscaped beforehand uh, um no wind resistance <laughs> So you broke your personal best. That's good. Uh, It's questions day, uh, Kieran, but producer Guy has included one news story, just for old time's sake. Uh, And the news story is that the EFL have asked the government to allow clubs to defer millions of pounds in tax payments. I shall be asking them a similar question come January. Yes. um, uh, Damien Collins, who's been on the show, he actually asked a question in Parliament Mm. as to how much clubs in the EFL owed. um, And it comes to around about £78 million in PAYE. And that's going to become due very shortly. Mm. Um, And we've sort of highlighted this in the past, that we're sort of coming out of a tunnel into a train uh, (laughs) as far as the, the, the tax requirements are concerned. So I think it's good, Damien, first of all, to, to highlight the problem. And uh, I, I believe the EFL are in talks with uh, with, the, with the government to try to push this down and also to try to get VAT reduced from 20% to 5%. Um, you know, I, I know they're not selling any tickets at present, but at least on any sales they've got, it, it's going to help them to uh, to make a bit more money. Uh, we'll have to wait to see how this one goes. Uh, you know, the, the government uh, government doesn't seem very keen on footballers at present, given mm. that that Marcus Rashford has managed to unite the whole country against uh, against the incumbents at number ten and and, and their friends. God bless him. We we need to make that boy sports personality of the year, don't we? I think the, the government have allowed uh, quite large sections of the self employed industry and the entertainment industry to defer January's tax for another year. Um, and I suspect, given this government's record, they will say no to the EFL now, but then allow them to defer tax in future. And it's, it's important that they do so, basically, Kieran, isn't it? Because it's going to be, as you say, a massive, a massive hit if come the thirty first of January they've got to pay millions of pounds in in taxes. And you know, there's no suggestion that they don't pay the taxes. They're just asking for more time to do so. Yeah, and uh, I think people need to realise, you know, as we said all along, football. Our, you know, football teams are community assets. Football clubs are community assets. 
you've, you've only got to look at the amazing efforts over the course of the last week, the amount of money that's been raised by, by football fans turning around to pay-per-view and saying, no, we're not going to do it, but yep. we're not going to keep the money in our own pockets. Yep. Uh, we, we're going to give it to uh, to people who are less fortunate than ourselves, if you can afford to do so. Appreciate that some people can't. Yep. Um, and uh, if, you know, clubs are coming to unite. And the only, only, thing I feel, only thing I feel slightly uneasy about is that it has now turned into a bit of a bragging rights issue with, with clubs trying to outdo that yeah. out to each other. But to a large extent, the ends justified the means and, and the more money that's raised, the better. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing that Brighton West Brom tomorrow isn't going to raise a lot of money for anyone donating what they would have spent watching that. Um, and also on a final note, and I mean, over the past two decades, football has contributed billions of pounds to the national treasury. So I think it's only fair that the treasury cuts them a break at this time, isn't it? Um, questions, Kieran. Uh, we have a heady and eclectic mix. And the first one is from Thomas Bouch. Uh, I think that's how it's pronounced, Thomas. I asked Ali, who speaks German. Uh, according to her, it's actually pronounced, seriously, you woke me up to ask me this, Bouch. Um, <laughs> I, I do apologise, Thomas. Uh, Thomas uh, says that he is a German football romantic now in Mexico setting up a grassroots football for good organisation. Uh, Ali added, good for him. Um, <laughs> Thomas adds that he... <laughs> Thomas adds that he listens religiously to the pod uh, and a noble common goal style. He has donated 1% of his salary to us, which is lovely. Uh, and he explains that if we haven't received anything yet, it's because his salary is a whopping nil pesos, euros or pounds. So I can only assume that he too is employed by a producer guy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, after, the, after Thomas's brief preamble of a stand-up routine, he asks this, how much are the costs of running domestic and international football academies in the style of Ajax, Barcelona, Chelsea or Bayern? How much profit do they make by having their own academy players in the first team or selling them to other teams? And, and I'll add, Kieran, is it, is it as simple as deducting the cost of running an academy um, from the cost of a transfer fee and that's that's how much profit they've made? Um, there's that, but there's also what we refer to as an opportunity cost because if you take a look at uh, clubs such as Manchester United, they've got Rashford, Greenwood, McTominay um, and so on playing for the first team on a regular basis. So that means it saved them having to go out into the transfer market and sign players of, of a similar caliber so, th so there's two aspects you're absolutely right it, it's it's transfer it's not just transfer fees it's loan fees as well because if we take a look at Chelsea they've got you know around about was it 30 players out on loan this season um, some of which they will be charging uh, a loan fee for others they will be purely to get experience um, Chelsea have got some players who, who've been out on loans at different clubs I, th I think Victor Moses strictly is still on Chelsea's books but, oh, you know, I, okay. I, I can't remember the last time I see it, saw him near the first team because he seems to be out on loan at a different club on a regular basis. So, but I'm, I'm, I may I may be wrong on that, and if I am, I'm sure our listeners will correct me. <laughs> um, so, so how how does it work in terms of costs? Realistically, if you are Category One Academy, you're looking at a minimum investment of five million pounds a year. For a club such as Chelsea or Manchester City, I think you can probably double that. I mean, Manchester yeah. City 
are incredibly generous. They, uh, for all of their academy kids, that uh, they, they all go to uh, to a private school. Uh, yeah, this is one of the things that they do to to sell the club to mm. parents and and to the to the young players themselves. Um, if you look at Chelsea, Chelsea have made more money than any club in the Premier League in each of the last five seasons from player sales. But that includes the likes of Solanke, Ake, Chaloba, uh, Traore and so on. Yeah, that's £40 million in sales. So these things do tend to pay for themselves. Um, it, it can be erratic, but the bigger they become... Um, the, the more successful they tend to become as well, because uh, you know, on, on a percentage basis, if you if five percent of them turn out to be uh, successful, five percent of a large number can can generate an awful lot of uh, transfer fees. Mm. Uh, to be fair to Thomas, he did also mention loans as well as transfers, but I had to sub something out of that question, so I just took the words and loans out of it. So um, don't get cross, Thomas, and carry on with your good work in Mexico. Uh, now, Apu Vias asks a question with no preamble, but it's a very interesting one, touching on a subject we've talked about a lot in the past. Do clubs use the multi-limited company structure to get around FFP? And if so, why aren't more clubs doing it? And if a club does use a multi-limited structure, how is it decided which limited company will be subject to the FFP ruling? Right. Um, are they using it? We, we, we can't say that they are doing it, but... We can say that it's possible that they could do it. Okay. Um, so just, I've just uh, consulted my, my pub lawyer on that particular issue. Um, in terms of a multi-club structure, the advantage is, of course, that you can spread the costs between all of the different companies. So if we took a look at the City Football Group, um, I think that lost around about £70 million last year. But Manchester City Football Club, which is one of City Football Group Club, uh, City Football Group managed itself to break even. So there's an advantage if you've got central costs, you know, legal costs, HR, training, you know, other facilities, those can be spread or, and perhaps allocated on, a, on an unusual level to, to, the, uh, to the clubs, the satellite clubs in Belgium and in New York and Australia, which themselves aren't subject to financial fair play. So is that feasible? Yes, it is. Um, in terms of his sort of second question, which one is, is subjected to the FFP ruling? Normally, if you, if you take a look at um, if you take a look at the, uh, the the books of the Premier League Limited or the English Premier League Limited and the English Football League Limited, they actually publish each year who their shareholders are, and it tends to be these shareholders who are the, the institutions which themselves are subject to FFP. Um, so, so that's how that particular issue works. Right. Uh, you know that pub lawyer you consulted, is that you? Yes. Okay. I just thought we should clear that up for legal reasons. Um, <laughs> Dara Martin is a West Brom fan. Uh, good luck tonight, Dara. Uh, don't forget to boycott pay-per-view. Uh, West Brom, he says, got in the region of £180 million for getting to the Premier League. And Dara understands from listening to this very pod that most of that is paid at the start of the season. But West Brom said at the start of the summer that their transfer budget was only going to be £25 million. Uh, I know, says Dara, that there are player bonuses, etc. to pay, but where would the other £155 million left over go? Right. Uh, first of all, I think it's a myth that you're going to get £180 million straight up from being promoted to the Premier League. Oh, okay. That £180 million consists of 
a minimum of one year in the Premier League and then two potential years of parachute payments. So it's £180 million spread over three years. Right. Um, In terms of what West Bromwich Albion are likely to get, um, in their first year in the Premier League, taking into consideration the loss of the Chinese TV deal and the fact that rebates are being given to some other broadcasters, if the side that finishes bottom of the Premier League this year, I, I estimate will receive somewhere in the region of 80 to 85 million pounds. So it, it, putting a, a transfer budget of 25 million net against that, that, that allows you to increase your wage bill by probably around about 35 to 40 million. When they're in the championship, West Brom were losing 350 grand a week. So you've got to take that into consideration as well. So there'll be upgrades on one or two things to make them Premier League compliant. Um, There will be bonuses paid to the players and and the management squad from last season. So that's where if the club wants to break even and and, some some owners are willing to, uh, to underwrite losses, if the club wants to break even, then I would say potentially a, a spend of it in the region of 25 to 30 million is probably about par. Hmm. Um, that 180 million pound myth is one that I've been happily propagating. So I probably better stop doing that considering I host a finance football pod. Um, the, the upgrading thing is quite interesting as well, because we, we have mentioned this before that you, uh, you know, you need specialist broadcasting equipment for the Premier League, you know, catering press facilities for the Premier League, etc. But presumably a club like West Brom would have quite recently been in the Premier League would have those facilities already, wouldn't they? Same with Fulham. So that's an expense they wouldn't have to go to. Um, yes. I mean, I, I think I think the, the, the routines are, are changed each year in oh, okay. respect of... Um, the broadcasters, you now have to be HD or 4K compliant in yeah. terms of things such as your floodlights. So, so they might have to be upgraded, oh, okay. and, and that could have been slightly different. I, mean, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, West Brom were only relegated in, in 2018, mm. so it could be a, a close to zero cost, uh, but it's certainly more significant for clubs such as Leeds, who, who have come up to the Premier League after a slightly longer stay in, in the Championship. Toby Bowles says that he recently noticed that the Paris Saint-Germain president, Nasser Al-Khalifa, is also the chairman of the Bayin Media Group, who essentially fund French football. Does this lead to bias, says Toby, when it comes to awarding rights and distributing TV revenue? Well, the the rights um, and distribution model has to be agreed by all of the clubs in League One, or rather majority. So um, Bayin are not in a position to say that we're going to give more money to uh, PSG. Having said that, um, they, they do end up with more money simply because of the fact that it's always tiered, um, just is in the Premier League, so that the club that finishes top gets more money than the club finishing second and so on. Um, there, there are some big issues in French football. Um, PSG make one third of the total revenue generated by, by French League One, and, and that, that's not healthy. Mm. Yeah, they win it every year, it's a bit of a procession. If you take a look at where PSG were a decade ago, before they were acquired by um, by Qatar, um, it, uh, ten years ago their revenue was 101 million, compared to say Lyon at 130, Marseille at 150. 
Um, today, it's 650 million uh, and Lyon's only 220. So they're three times bigger than the second biggest club uh, in, in France. And, and that doesn't make for healthy football. So but I, I don't think uh, Kalifi can uh, abuse the position. But uh, French football is a bit of a mess. It made operating losses of over 700 million, 700 million euros in 2019. It has had a bailout from the French government. Uh, but the irony is, is that the bailout is paid to clubs um, in, in line with the amount of TV money that they receive. Mm. So therefore, the French government is giving money in effect to the Qatari uh, state broadcaster. Hmm. Uh, on a purely football level as well, that lack of competition in the French league for PSG is reflected in their performances in in Europe as well. Really, I mean, if it's if it's so easy for them to win games week in week out, and then they're losing to what is by far not the best Man United team of a long of a long time, that's not good for them, is it? It's not. I mean, they, they did get to the final uh, in August, just, but, yeah. but uh, yeah, they, I think they probably underperformed mm. uh, as to where the, certainly the owners would expect them to be. Uh, but if you've got to walk over every week, it's it's difficult to maintain that level of mm. competition and adrenaline for for, for matches. You you, you can't. You, you and I both know this. You can't just switch it on. Well, let that's that's for another pod, Kieran, because occasionally we can. <laughs> um, from, from the French League to our league, Jonathan Melling says, it's clear that the Premier League and the EFL are two completely separate businesses and governing bodies. How common is this across Europe that the top league is run independently of the leagues below? What are the pros and cons of this arrangement, financial or otherwise? Um, right. I mean, he, he's absolutely right. It, it, it's certainly very unusual um, as far uh, as football is concerned. And in fact, we've, we've got three governing bodies because we've got the Football Association, the English Premier League and the English Football League. Um, it's fairly evident that there is open warfare taking place between Greg Clark and Rick Parry at present. Mm. Uh, lots of accusations being made and fingers pointed. Um, so having one body in charge of football does allow you to have consistency of approach, which which is beneficial. Um, having more than one body means that different tiers of football c- can operate in, in their own best best interests. Now, whether those best interests are in line with football as a whole, uh, I think as we've seen, you know, it, it, the Premier League's taking of such a huge share of total revenues generated by English football does put a lot of pressure on clubs in the EFL to try to get promoted. So those clubs end up losing money. Um, you know, my personal view is, you know, I think we've had, we had this discussion before, having having a single regulator uh, looking after the game as a whole has 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 benefits, but of course it depends who that regulator is. Uh, mm. You know, if 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 he or she is uh, is sympathetic towards one aspect of football rather than the others, then then you're going to get dissent. Mm. Uh, Neil Kimpton says you touched on it briefly. Uh, Neil, uh, can I ask you in future, as long with anybody else asking the question, not to use phrases like you touched on it briefly? because I'm trying to reduce Kieran's sniggering opportunities as far as possible. Uh, but Neil says, Neil says you touched on it briefly, but could you delve a bit more into Harrogate Town's promotion and the subsequent need to rip up their 3G pitch, which was used extensively by the local community, including Neil and his sons? If Harrogate were relegated this season, which doesn't look likely, would they be better or worse financially than if they hadn't been 
promoted in terms of replacing the pitch, loss of revenue, etc.? Well, well, Harrogate Town, um, looking at their most recent accounts, they broadly broke even in 2019, which was a pretty good achievement. Um, that they they are a classic club with a, a what I guess is a local owner. There's there's a company called Strata Homes, which appears to uh, be very generous towards the club. Um, the three G pitch, it does give opportunities to use the stadium seven days a week. Hmm. So therefore, that increases uh, revenue flows. And, you know, and, and we've spoken about this. I know it's a horrid management phrase, this phrase called sweating the assets. Hmm. Uh, football club stadiums are left unop- you know, unused for, for 340 days a year hmm. um, under sort of traditional means. And, and that's uh, that's not necessarily very efficient if they're losing money. Um, Harrogate ha- did commit themselves to spend 750k upgrading one of the stands, which was going to be really good, I think, for the fans. And again, another tragedy of COVID hmm. that uh, the fans of both Harrogate and Barrow haven't had an opportunity to see their teams play in the EFL to date. In terms of his question in relation to relegation, um, the EFL TV deal and the um, and the solidarity payments, which are paid by the Premier League, which lots of people seem to forget you know the premier league is painted as the big bad wolf but two-thirds of the money that goes in tv payments uh two clubs in league one and two actually is coming from the premier league itself mm. is worth just over one million pounds it's worth about probably about 1.1 million in, in a normal year um so they would lose that from relegation uh would that that would probably offset the the the, the changing of the of the pitch to, to back to grass. Um, and you would also get parachute payments um, from the EFL back in the National League. So overall, they're probably better off financially uh, in terms of revenue. But of course, they will have had to increase their wage bill, I suspect, as a means of being promoted from the National League to the EFL League 2. And I suppose if they do get relegated, Kieran, they've got a dilemma then because do they go back to a plastic pitch um for the revenue or do they assume or hope that they will get promoted again in the next couple of years and stay with the grass pitch that they've got well i, I agree with you entirely i think that's got, got a decision which will be made at board level are, are they going to to push you know with the benefit of parachute payments to get back to the efl again we we have seen in recent years a, a few uh, yo-yo clubs. I mean, Macclesfield Town, until they were destroyed by uh, the owner and the, the points deductions, uh, they, they were a classic yo-yo club. Barnet had been up and down between the EFL and the National League on a regular basis as well. If, if Harrogate's board felt that they were going to uh, fund the club to an extent where they're going to have, a, have another pitch to get up, then, then of course, they, they'd be better off staying with a grass pitch. Mm. I only added that bit on so that people on the pod can hear the word grass pronounced properly, Kieran. It disturbs me the way you say it. Somebody from well, somebody from the old Kent Road shouldn't be saying grass. Yeah, but I lived, lived in Manchester for 40 years. Nevertheless, Kieran, one has certain standards that one has to retain <laughs> and the pronunciation of grass and bath and Fortneath. Uh, is one of them. Alex Boyle has a question about shirt sales. Alex Boyle says, how much money can teams expect to make from shirt sales for marquee signings? So did Juve, for example, pay all that money for an elderly Ronaldo to help win the Champions League or will they make money back by selling shirts and merchandise with his name on? 
Um, I think there are probably a handful of players who, who can make a difference financially to merchandise sales. If, if you take a look at the likes of, of Messi, Ronaldo and Neymar, uh, between them, they've got 540 million followers on uh, on Instagram, wow. um, which is which is which is more than the their respective clubs have. Hmm. So wow. yeah, that that's a hell of an achievement, <sighs> and that can shift units of of product. Um, in terms of if it was a lesser player, I, I would say the the dial probably wouldn't shift very much because. Even if it's a domestic issue, all that you tend to do is, is that you change the name. You know, if, if those people that like player names on the back of their shirts, and, and personally, I, I, I don't, mm. um, it, it, you just shift it from one player to another. So it doesn't actually. You're not. You're not going to buy two shirts. You're going to buy one shirt, and you might have Messi on it instead of Sterling if you're a Manchester City yeah. fan, and that deal goes through next season. In terms of your international, your global sales, I think it can make a difference simply because um, there is evidence that there is a generation of football fans coming through, and and you're going to shudder at this, Kevin, who follow the player rather than the team. (laughs) And therefore, you know, I'm I'm a fan of, you know, somebody said, I'm a fan of Ronaldo, I'm a fan of Messi or Neymar or whatever. And when the player moves, um, their, their attention moves with it. Um, now, uh, it, for, for that particular demographic, uh, then then there would be an impact upon shirt sales. But remember, the players themselves, um, they will have uh, IP rights, intellectual property rights uh, in respect of shirt sales, and they will get a slice every time that a Juve shirt is sold oh, with right. Cristiano and seven on the back of it. Assuming he's, I can't, assuming he's wearing the number seven, yeah. um, then he will get a slice of the action. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, our next question comes from Stuart Copperwheat, uh, which is a brilliant surname. Uh, Quite Dickensian. Stuart, if you want to get in touch and explain where your surname derives from, I'd be fascinated to know. Uh, Stuart is uh, a QPR fan. Which, you know, he wins in this surname stakes. He loses in the football stakes. But it, QPR fan, QPR bought Luke Amos from Spurs and Lyndon Dykes from Livingston over the summer, both for undisclosed fees. So Stuart wants to know what are the pros and cons for either clubs in not actually disclosing fees? Um, I, I spoke to a uh, club chief executive on, on this very topic, mm. um, and he said that most clubs are aware of uh, the budgets that uh, other clubs have. So by not disclosing fees, it allows you to keep things a little bit more secretive. Mm. Um, and therefore, when you might be negotiating for another player, um, the the selling club won't know whether your budget still remaining is is five million or ten million or so on. Okay. So so that was the the reason given. Um, also, um, in terms of um, the, the 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 players themselves, um, it's it's to put less pressure pressure on a player. If, if a player comes in and you've said that you've spent thirty million pounds on him from the fan base, that there comes a certain expectation that he's going to deliver a, you know, a, a prescribed number of goals. You've only got to look at the likes of Wesley at Aston Villa, Joe Linton mm. at uh, at Newcastle, Sebastian Haller 
at West Ham. You know, 30 to 40 million pounds has been the quoted fees. And the fans are going, well, well, is that what you get for 30 million quid? Yeah, yeah. Um, so therefore, if he's undisclosed, then the fans aren't really quite sure what to expect. You know, we, we've had this um, discussion before about Ayu at Palace. That, yeah. You know, for one and a half million pounds, he's done a fantastic job. Um, whereas if, if that signing had been for 25 or 30 million, you as a Palace fan might be thinking, well, you know, I'm a bit, bit disappointed. So it actually can work in the favour of the player in terms of the amount of pressure that put, is put onto him from fans, either in the grounds, it, them, in the grounds themselves or via social media. So, yeah, I have no actual proof of this, Kieran, which has never stopped me uh, spreading <laughs> things before. But it, it seems to me that undisclosed fees normally tend to be at the lower end of the market. Well, you know, if the player is costing a lot of money, clubs tend to be quite happy to reveal that. But it tends to be the players that would probably cost half a million, a million, two million, where, where it's an undisclosed fee. And quite often I assume undisclosed fee means free transfer, but that's not the case, obviously. No, no, and I, I know at Brighton they they have a strict policy. We don't disclose fees. Yeah, they, oh, at they, all. They, oh, okay. They they are very very coy um, and reluctant to to disclose numbers. That doesn't stop us from you know putting a fee. You know, we we, we, we as fans will say, well, it's got to be X million or Y million yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Um, but uh, it it does very much vary from club to club. If you are a club who is listed on a stock exchange, then sometimes there's more pressure to disclose it because it's a big transaction and, and the stock market needs to be told. If you go to Italy, um, I get very giddy when Italian clubs publish their accounts because they have the habit of of showing every single fee paid mm. uh, in a big long list, and and I go into spreadsheet heaven. <laughs> uh, we're, we're all going to spreadsheet heaven in the end, Kieran. Hopefully, <laughs> uh, I'm assuming Brighton don't disclose fees in case their hummus manufacturer realizes how much budget you've got left and puts the prices up. Um, Mark Swan. I like this question. I like the cut of Mark Swan's jib. Mark Swan says, being a Coventry fan for my sins, which I know I will have to pay off at some point in my life, otherwise he won't be going to spreadsheet heaven. Mark says, could you tell me how good, bad or indifferent are our hedge fund owners, Sisu, and how are they suddenly funding our rise up the league? Now, it's an interesting one, this, Kieran. Was, um, I was listening to Five Live yesterday in the evening because uh, I like to confirm on as many media as possible that Palace have actually won. Um, and Mark Clement, the admirable Mark Clement, was talking about Blackburn Coventry, and he said that how amazing it is that three years ago any game between Blackburn and Coventry would have been uh, dominated by discussion about their owners. But because both clubs are doing relatively well, no one's talking about the Venkies or or Sisu. So it's, it's I found that quite interesting. And so how are yeah? Because traditionally Sisu are, are, are bad guys according to, to our pod. So are they bad or good or indifferent? Well, um, on the good side, they, they have put in around about £40 million into the club in outstanding loans. Um, so that, on that basis, they, they have funded the club um, over the course of the last decade. Certainly during the first half of the teeny years, uh, Coventry were losing substantial amounts of money. In the last five years, the club has broadly broken even although that is very much to do with having a, a very good academy and the sale of players uh, you know, of the calibre of James James Madison, Callum Wilson, yeah, Mark yeah. McNulty and so yeah. on, that they've, they've allowed the club to, to broadly break even over that period. 
trying to work out Sisu's motives is is almost impossible. Yeah, they, they are impenetrable as to to the logic behind uh, what their what their end game is. There is an ongoing dispute with the, the present owners, uh, which, is, which is what Wasp Rugby Club. There's outstanding. Mm. Uh, spats with the council and things of this nature. Uh, my gut reaction was when they acquired the club, the aim was like many sort of organisations of this nature is, is to run it for a couple of years, improve it financially and sell it on a profit. Um, as a result of the, the disputes in respect of the stadium, uh, that's never materialised. So in many respects, you would have thought that they would have bailed out years ago, but for some reason they, they, they have continued um and at present yeah and it's always the same if if a club's doing well the the amount of dissent tends to fall um and sort of sort of you're absolutely right with regards to blackburn rovers uh the venkies are being ridiculously generous yeah. only last month they put they put in a few more million into the club and they they have uh, funded the losses at blackburn which have been huge over the course of the last decade um with uh, sort of you know a, a fairly cheery here's another check and uh, just get on with it guys yeah i suppose in in the future for coventry though it's difficult for them to make money without their own stadium isn't it well, that's right. Play, I mean, pl- playing anywhere with an, 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 an before uh, an empty crowds is, is, of course, bad news financially. But playing for the foreseeable future at St Andrews or the Trillion Trophy Stadium, to give it its uh, its official name, um, is is bad news. Uh, any, any club which has ever been a tenant uh, tends to get the short end of the stick, and, and that's not a that's not a dig at the the landlord. Um, but you're always going to look after yourselves first. And, you know, in terms of things such as catering and merchandise and hospitality sales, the host club is, is going to pick up the lion's share of that. So until until they do find uh, a new stadium, and there has been talk, of course, about something uh, taking place at Warwick University, yeah. um, then uh, it's, it's going to be a struggle for the club to, to push on any further. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Now, Kieran, you know how Guy likes to keep mistakes in because he thinks it makes the pod more real. Uh, he's going to really enjoy this because I've just realised I owe somebody an apology looking at my handwritten script. Uh, either I owe Mark Swan an apology uh, for the question he just asked or I owe Philip Swan an apology because quite clearly I've written down the surname twice. Um, it could be that it is a Philip Swan asking the question uh, it could be Mark Swan's brother, but I suspect I've just wasn't paying attention and I've just <laughs> looked at both questions and put Swan down to it. Or, as my writing's so bad, it could be that Philip Shaw, Philip Swan is Philip Shaw, or Mark Swan is Mark Shaw, in which case I retract my apology. But I've got one of their names wrong, Kieran, basically. Um, uh, and I made a balls up of explaining it as well. So Kieran, a guy will love that. And so I just, I just called him Kieran instead of Guy. So he's just piling mistake on mistake here, aren't we? It's, 
It's like, you're oh, giddy, giddy on being in the top six, Kevin. Uh, top five, I think you'll find, yeah, which is, oh, again, another mistake because the top five is in the top six as well. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't, it's amazing how many uh, screenshots I got of that league table yesterday. I think every single person on every every Palace WhatsApp group I belong to screenshotted that. Is that a word? Screenshotted that? Anyway, Philip Swan, sure, um, Mark's brother, whatever. Um, it's a shame. It's a good question. Philip has been thinking about the recent Lionel Messi situation and buyout clauses. Could a player, says Philip uh, Swanshaw, buy himself out of a contract and join whoever he pleased? And could a third party, like a state or an agent, buy a player out of his contract to get round regulations? Right. My understanding, um, and, and this question is from Philip Swan. I don't think it's the... Uh, I don't think it's connected to the guy that owns Scunthorpe. And the previous question, according to my typewritten version, is from Mark Strong, which is a word which I don't even think you managed to get in, in all of your in all of your apologies. Do you know what, you, you, Kieran? You could have saved us all a lot of trouble if you'd interrupted me and said that earlier. Do you know that? You just enjoyed it, didn't you? Um, I, I only just spotted it when, when you when you raised it. Yeah, you know, I've. I've I've got everything on my mind map, so I, I tend to look at the, the the nerdy bits of the answers rather than the names. Well, in which case, Mark, I apologise to Mark Strong and to Philip Swan, and now I don't like either of them now for because for, I got their names wrong. I do, of course, I like I like the sound of both Mark and Philip. Uh, thank you, Kieran, for listening to me stumble around for two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Now, um, so to answer this particular question. Yeah, and it better be a um, good answer as well, Kieran. Trust me. <laughs> Spanish football is is different from probably the rest of Europe in the sense that uh, every player has a buyout clause embedded in his contract. And it oh, is okay. the player himself who has to pay the fee if the contract is going to be terminated early. Now, what tends to happen is that if, shall we say, uh, Lionel Messi has a £350 million, that was a £700 million euro clause in his contract to buy out, what would happen in reality is that 30 seconds before he pays that sum to Barcelona, Manchester City would transfer exactly the same amount of money into his bank account. So that's the way that the system works. So it, it's sort of, it's a linked system as a rule, um, unless the player just has had enough and just says, I, I, I don't want to play football anymore. Here's a few million euros. I'm buggering off down the beach. Mm. Um, so so that's, that's how it works. Um, so it, it can be done by um, a nation state, um, and the other part of um, the question was: Could he could could have, uh, could it be done to get them out of the regulations? The answer is no. You, you would have to follow. I mean, the reason why uh, Messi stayed with the club was that both uh, Barcelona and La Liga put their foot down and said, "We are not willing to uh, allow you to go mm. um, on the cheap." Well, our next question is from Alan Morton and Glory B, Kieran, producer guy, has put two related questions together. He's finally learned how to paste as well as cut. That's very good news for us all. Um, Alan says, with the La Liga decision to back Barcelona in the Messi fiasco, as he puts it, how much is Messi worth to La Liga as a product? Surely they would be less marketable and profitable without him. Well, I, I agree with Alan. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, the, the biggest three players in Spain fairly recently were Lionel Messi, uh, Neymar and Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, two of those players have gone. Mm. Now, from from Spanish football's 
way of seeing itself, which is one of the leading lights of world football, for them to lose their three biggest stars doesn't reflect particularly well. Mm. And that's another reason why uh, La Liga did come fairly hard uh, in, in terms of, was it willing to be flexible in terms of the release cause? If you, if you take a look at the players that have been signed uh, for, for large fees um, in in Spanish football, um, we've had Eden Hazard go from Chelsea for ninety million. He's, he scored one goal in a year. Yeah, yeah that's Felipe yeah. uh, Coutinho is Philippe who. Um, so you know that that was that that was op- that was an attempt to replace the the Galacticos with with more Galacticos, and it's been uh, you know pretty hit and miss. You've got Griezmann. I know I know Griezmann has gone from from one Spanish club to another, but Griezmann's not been a success. Um, Yao Felix has not been a success hugely as well. Um, so, so Spanish football, in terms of the way it's trying to sell itself to an international audience, is really very reliant on Messi as the one player that people have heard of uh, if they're based in the States or if they're based in Australia or whatever, and, and La Liga's trying to sell the rights there. Hmm. David Stout says, I have a quick amortisation question. Why? I, 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 I genuinely laughed when I read that, <laughs> which is really annoying for Ali because he just got back to sleep. But that just made me laugh. I've got a quick amortisation question. Uh, let's say, says David, that a player underperforms to such an extent or does something illegal that makes the club want to nullify their contract. Let's also say that they are two years into a five-year contract, having been bought for £50 million, amortised at £10 million a year. The club and the player mutually agree to cancel the contract and the player leaves on a free transfer. What happens to the £30 million left unaccounted for? Can the club amortise still for the next three years or do they pay it off as part of cancelling the contract? So it was a question about amortisation, but it sure as hell wasn't quick. That's true. Right. Um, what happens here is, is that we move away from the rules of amortisation into what is referred to as impairment. If a player's value is less than the uh, balance sheet value, which is costless amortisation, then the club will be obliged to, to write it down to what they could hope to sell the player for. So if you cancel a contract with a player who's still got £30 million of unamortised fees remaining, that whole thirty million pounds would be written off as an exceptional charge um, and uh, and an impairment. So we've got a few examples of this. Um, Liverpool in twenty sixteen um, they wrote off eight million pounds in impairment charges. Um, they they were coy. They they were not willing to name the player. Um, I'm willing to put a large amount of money on the fact that it's likely to have been Mario Balotelli because yeah. he came, he, but I think he was on a three-year contract. The first year, he didn't do a huge amount. The second year, he went out on loan and then he effectively had his, ca- his contract cancelled. Um, it's also quite common if a club is relegated, you, you look at the value of the squad on your books and you say, well, there, I think the the technical term is is a bag of shite, and <laughs> um, and, and therefore we think they're overvalued. So when, when Villa were relegated in uh, 2016, they put through 34 million pounds worth of these impairment charges. 
And you might say, well, why do they do that? Well, it comes back potentially. And I'm not saying this is the case, of course. This, if, if I was a scheming creative accountant, I'd be trying to put through my impairment charges in those years in which I was in the Premier League because you're allowed to lose far more money for FFP purposes than you are in the EFL. So this is a way of accelerating your losses in terms of uh, amortization into those years when you're in the Premier League and, and you're actually allowed to lose more money. Now, I'm not saying that was the motive of Aston Villa, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's my nervous laugh in case lawyers are listening. Um, Mark Younger, Kieran, says, as a Sheffield Wednesday fan, I always wonder what our owner gets out of owning the club. We make huge losses each year, and as our season goes by, we are further and further from promotion. Can he still make money out of us? Um, well, if, if he if he does make money out of Sheffield Wednesday, uh, especially when they started this season on minus 12 points, mm. it will be um, a hell of an achievement. Um, the owner, uh, Dejvong Shansiri, uh, acquired the club in, in January uh, 2015. And um, he's missed a double because in, uh, in 2015, they lost 5 million. The next year, 10 million. The next year, 21. And the final year, 2018, they lost 38 million. Um, he's still not published the 29 accounts um, for, for reasons which are, are completely unclear. It is in breach of company law. Um, so no, nobody's quite sure what, what his motivations are. Um, in terms of the, the other financial benefits or the other potential benefits from a business perspective, um, I mean, you, you can say to people, I own a, a football club in England. Now, he, his family... Um, and you can't say this about many people, are the world's largest producers of canned tuna. Um, and, and that's where the, the, that's where effectively what has funded um, the uh, the acquisition of uh, of Sheffield Wednesday. So, so every time you, uh, you you pop down to your local supermarket and you and you get a, a can of John West or whatever it's going to be, um, then then you are contributing towards uh, covering Sheffield Wednesday's losses. And I've got to say, whilst I'm on this, the Baroness makes an absolutely amazing tuna and chorizo pasta bake. Um, but other than the kudos and potentially the ability to do some hospitality work. I'm, I'm not sure of the financial benefits of, of owning a football club in the championship. Yeah, I'm, I'm on about to say, Kieran, that he may be Mr. Double, but I am Mr. Pedant. And on behalf of all those pedants listening, that you technically can't say it about anyone, Kieran. If they are the world's largest producers of tin tuna, then uh, they are the world's largest producer. No, you can't have another largest producer of tin tuna in the world. Uh, and secondly, I'm sure, I'm sure that the Baroness's tuna and chorizo bake is lovely, but there is one big problem for it, uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's got tuna in it. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 can't, I, I did. I don't like. Oily, I used to, a long, long time ago, I went out with a girl who ate nothing but tuna and it was like snogging a cat. It was, um, uh, I'm not at home to tuna. I got told off in a Japanese restaurant recently because Ali made me try it and I had to take it out of my mouth and the, the family next to me didn't. Really? It was like, it's disgusting. Oh, no, why, would right. you, why would anybody eat tuna? I don't, it's... Ugh, fish in general. A tuna, a tuna steak is it's, absolutely amazing. It, it's clearly you're, you're, we know you're a wrongun, Kieran, because of who you support. But seriously, that's the view of a wrongun when it comes to tuna. Serious, tin tuna. Well, 
anyway, uh, <laughs> this is a byway I wasn't expecting to explore in this, <laughs> that this, on this particular pod. Our final question comes from uh, Jamie Donnelly, um, and Jamie starts this question with a, a prefix. He says, this question is undoubtedly going to annoy Kevin, as I'm a Real Madrid fan from Ireland. And he puts there, I've never lived in Spain. Um, I wasn't annoyed by him supporting Real Madrid. Now, that bit, I've never lived in Spain. I thought that was a bit defiant, I have to say, from Jamie Donnelly. There, I was with him until you can support who you want. But then that, all right, I've never lived in Spain. All right, fine. I've never lived in Mexico. There you go. Um, if I'm annoyed with anyone, Jamie, I'm more annoyed with producer Guy, basically, because we've just had two questions about Spain. 10 minutes ago, and he could have put this one there, and that would have been a, a lovely little package. But basically, Jamie wants to know about his club uh, in Real Madrid that he's clearly never been to see because he's never lived in Spain. No, he could have visited, I suppose. Uh, with Madrid already starting work on the Bernabeu Stadium upgrade, how are the club paying for it, and how damaging will it be to the books? Are they using the same financial concept that Spurs used to build the new White Hart Lane? Um. Yes, that they are very much copying that that style of approach. Um, have you, if, this, if people just heard a strange buzzing sound uh, coming out of my microphone, it's because a micro light has just flown over the house. We've got a uh, we've got an airstrip about uh, half a mile away, and, and they tend to use that. Yeah, um, Kieran. Um, every listener on this pod has learned from long experience not to question any strange buzzing sounds that come from your <laughs> from your microphone, Kieran. Well, especially <laughs> since we started being sponsored by Manscaped. I, I just love the fact you live next to a vineyard and you've got a micro light airport next to your house as well. It's, it's some kind of James Bond vibe going on in your in your in your lair that you live in. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Right. Um, the the expansion of the Bernabeu, and it's it's not really an expansion in the sense that uh, the capacity is going to be broadly the same as it was previously, around about eighty to eighty one thousand. Having said that, uh, if anybody has seen the pictures, they are spectacular uh, in in respect of the changes what have been uh, that have been made. Um, the aim of Real Madrid is it's not going for more fans; it's going for more wealthy fans. So oh, no, the no. hospitality areas and the the conferencing facilities and the the the, uh, the museum uh, and things of this nature are being substantially upgraded, and, and they're trying to make their money from there. And, and they've probably seen uh, the the pricing structure at Spurs, which is very much geared towards relieving people of cash as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, and it is going to be very successful. I think Spurs could potentially uh, be the, the biggest revenue generators in the Premier League within, oh, wow. you know, in, in a post-COVID world, yeah. uh, provided they qualify for the Champions League. Um, so it's going to be £800 million, mainly funded by borrowings. Um, as, we, as we said before, you know, people get a little bit twitchy about clubs borrowing money. I've, I've got no issue with that whatsoever um, because the loans that tend to be organised are in the main interest-only loans. Mm. And you can borrow, if you're a large institution such as Real Madrid, you can borrow at relatively cheap rates. Certainly Spurs are, are borrowing between you know, two and a half and three and a half percent on the majority of their, their borrowing. So um, the, you, you look at the additional income, which will come from selling more seats to the uh, the prawn sandwich brigade or whatever they, the equivalent is in Madrid. I'm sure it's far more sophisticated than that. 
um, and and then you deduct the interest cost. And, and in my opinion, uh, Real Madrid uh, will be uh, have a cash positive on the back of this. Presumably, though, Kieran, they've committed financially to this long before COVID came along because it, it, it's a ballsy decision if they did it while we're in the middle of a global pandemic, isn't it? Yes, I think think the original proposal uh, was in 2017. Right. There was a bit of batting and f- to and fro with with the local council and things of that nature. Um, but it looks as if they've actually taken advantage of COVID-19 and um, they've gone full steam ahead with, uh, with with the development over the course of the summer. Matches are being played when they were at home. Um, I think matches were being played, and I'm sure Real Madrid fans will correct me if I'm wrong, um, at sort of the youth team pitch because you didn't need to, to, to use the full facilities. Yeah. Um, and the... The, the intention was for the the new ground to be available in 2022, but if you look at the clips on YouTube, it's it's pretty close to being there um, for whenever people are allowed to return to football. Hmm. If any of our Spanish listeners can tell us what the equivalent of the Prawn Sandwich Brigade is there, I'd be most grateful. Not Jamie Donnelly, obviously, because as he defiantly said, he's never lived there. Uh, but I'd like to know what it is, as long as it doesn't involve tuna, basically. Uh, if you, if, oh, tuna and chorizo. Chorizo, lovely. Tuna. Oh, you just ruined the chorizo. You would say that, because she's in the next room, Kieran. Let's, let's, you know, once we stop recording, although she'll still be in the next room once we stop recording, actually, so that I've just negated my own argument. Uh, if you have any questions for us, like our lovely listeners had today, um, and as I always say, it doesn't matter how big or how small the question is, Kieran will find a way of answering it then email us uh, on questions at priceoffootball.com i will say goodbye and we'll see you on thursday uh kieran we'll leave you with a message okay well once again folks thank you very much for the feedback thank you for the reviews on uh, apple itunes um we, we don't know why uh, but it does make a difference if you could give us a five-star review if you do enjoy the show we, we are very grateful we uh you know we do genuinely try to put on, on a good piece of research and a show for you um it, it doesn't matter what you write uh, you, know, you know we'd much rather you just subscribe if you want to say something nice then, then that's great but if you if you as long as you give us a five-star review you know, we're quite happy you, you could say you'd rather the show was hosted by lee hurst and pretty patel it doesn't bother us um so until then um until we see you again hopefully on thursday uh, stay safe look after yourselves keep in touch with people uh, i know we're all separated in many parts of the country uh, physically but let's make sure we keep in contact as many alternative ways as possible until then look after yourselves yeah we're gonna get a one-star review from world of tuna.com aren't we <laughs> bye everybody bye the price of football. I'm for the